All right, are we, are we ready? Yes? Are we live? That's the big question. We're live. We're live. So good to be here. It's great to be back at City Academy. It's uh, so great to have you guys here. It, it's amazing to think about uh, really soon. I mean, Lord willing, within about six weeks, we could all uh, have more people gathered. We could have full, uh, well, adjustedly full children's ministry. Uh, in April, we're going to have uh, in-person youth group again. It's so We're so thankful that things are opening up, and, uh, and so we're excited. Until then, let's do the best we can to obey the government guidelines and to honor God by doing that. Uh, I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 16 verses of Luke chapter 6, and I want to just read the first five verses, and then I want to pray, and then we'll get into it together. So Luke chapter 6, that's where we're going to be, so on your, if you have a Bible or electronic device with a Bible on it, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing him in their hands. But the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest eat, and gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Father, we pray that you would meet us here. We pray, God, that you would help us to see Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who gives us rest. Father, this is uh, uh, so important for us. We're so, we so need this today, and I pray we'd be honest need, and we look to you, Lord Jesus, to fill it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may or may not know that the word Sabbath means rest or ceasing. And the idea of Sabbath is something, this, this idea of, of a Sabbath. Way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, here's what we read. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on rested from all his work that he had done, in creation. So God, in creating the universe, in creating the heavens and the earth, he purposes a one day in seven rest. Even before there was such a thing as sin uh, in the created order, in, in, on earth, he, he says, listen, one day in seven, I'm setting aside that you might find refreshment and rest in me. In fact, this idea of of a Sabbath rest was, was meant to be the kind of identifying characteristic of God's covenant people. Later on in the book of Exodus, uh, there's many, many, many laws that had to do with the Sabbath, but here's, here's kind of the main idea here. He says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So even the land gets a, 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 a Sabbath. You shall likewise do with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. 
And six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, the son of your servant woman and the alien, that is the foreigner, may be refreshed. So he even says this is, a, this is an identifying, uh, identifying mark of God's covenant people that they're going to not work for one year and seven. Wouldn't that be nice? And they're going to not work one day and seven. Why? That they might be refreshed. That those who, who haven't been able to get enough from their work might glean. The poor might be provided for. So that what God has established with his people, rest, provision, refreshment, is experienced. In fact, this was such a big issue and, and something that the, the God's people, the Israelites, neglected so badly that throughout the prophets, we see warnings against or to God's people against not doing this, about what God will do if they don't do it. One example, Jeremiah 17, 27. But if you do not listen to me and refuse to keep the Sabbath holy, and if on the Sabbath day you bring loads of merchandise through the gates of Jerusalem, just as on other days then I will set fire to these gates. The fire will spread to the palaces and no one will be able to put out the roaring flames. Wow. God gives a sobering warning that there's only destruction for those who are rejecting what he provides as a Sabbath rest. Now you can understand with this much history about the Sabbath, how important it is to God in his revealed word, you can understand why the Pharisees why these who were wanting to be separated to God? Why these who were calling God's, to, to be, God's people to be separate and distinct? Why they be so hot on making sure the Sabbath is observed? And this is important to understand. Because it's easy for us, this side of the cross, 2,000 years removed from the first century when Jesus walked the earth, and, the, and the, the culture that was going on there religiously, it's easy for us to look at this and go, Pharisees, boo. But actually, these guys were like the spiritual Olympic athletes of their day. These were the guys that people looked up to because people had to acknowledge that they were serious about doing what they felt was God, what God's Word said. In fact, they were so committed to what God's Word said that even Jesus said, hey, don't do what they do, but do what they say because they sit in Moses' seat. They tell you what Moses said, what God says through Moses. Here's the problem. What was meant to be this day of rest and re re refreshment, what was meant to be this day uh, that was, should be protected for the provision of God's people, the religious traditions perverted it. They twisted it. They turned it into something that was a burden. It was full of rules and regulations. It was exhausting. There was no refreshment. There was only stress. Now, you, you can imagine if you lived in a day and age where the only way you pretty much made a living was sort of growing crops and buying and selling them or being involved in, in buying some crops and then selling them again or something. When it was an agrarian society, a society based on agriculture, you know what it's like if you know anything about farming. If the weather's bad, things go wrong. And so if you have like one day in seven to, to sort of gather in the, uh, the harvest before it floods out or something, and that one day happens to be the Sabbath, what are you going to be tempted to do? Your livelihood's dependent upon this. And so they would be stressed out thinking, why is God not letting us do what we need to do to provide for our people? And then you have these Pharisees say, no, in fact, it's stricter than just not working. You can't walk too far. 
You can't prepare food. I mean, they had this huge list, dozens and dozens and dozens of rules that were a way that they interpreted how the Sabbath must be kept. And this is one of the areas where Jesus and the religious leaders butted heads. It's one of those areas where, where Jesus was confronting the hypocrisy behind their traditions. And we, we get to this in the scene that we, we just read about in verse 1 of chapter 6. It's on a Sabbath, Luke tells us, that Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling, and there's no indication that they're traveling too far. I want to be clear about that. But they're traveling probably, is the length they need to travel, probably traveling to the synagogue. And as they travel, they go through the grain fields. These aren't their grain fields, but they begin to pluck out the wheat grain. And you can do this to this day, uh, maybe not legally in Great Britain. I'm not too sure about that. Be careful. But you can, you can get grains of wheat. You can rub them in your hand. And the chaff comes off. And the little grains of wheat, you can put them in your mouth and you can chew on them. And it comes into just like kind of a nutty gum. And it's got lots of nutrients. Now, there's probably also full of pesticides, by the way, so probably don't do that for that reason as well. But in that day, it was something you could easily do. And, and the Bible gave provision. God's law gave provision. This in Deuteronomy chapter 23. That, that you could walk through someone else's field. And as long as you didn't stop and use implements to harvest, as long as you weren't getting a basket and carrying it away, you could kind of like, it was like the convenience store, the corner market, Tesco Extra. You could pass through, grab some grain, grab some grapes, eat as you traveled. Again, it was God's provision, for, especially for those that were poor. And so Jesus' disciples are not stealing here. They're not doing anything wrong. The problem is they're doing it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are going, what are you doing? You can't do this on the Sabbath. Now, now listen, there's nothing in God's law that would say what they're doing right now, Jesus and his disciples are doing, is wrong. Nothing. It only violates the Pharisees' traditions. And here's what they're doing. This is super important for us to understand. The Pharisees are, are equating their application of God's law with God's law itself. Do you realize the reason, listen, the reason Jesus has one church and yet we can't seem to get along is because every single one of us, as Jesus followers, takes our own application and says, ah, this is the word of God. We all do this. This is why we constantly need to be corrected. We constantly need to be humble. We constantly need to be going back to the scriptures and saying, Lord, am I getting this right? One of the biggest dangers we can get, we can fall into, friends, is that we can look at God's word and we can say, okay, the pastor says I'm supposed to do this, and so if I do this, I'm being obedient to God. And we replace the living word of God that is, is meant to give life with a new tradition. And it's not healthy for us. So the Pharisees do this, and Jesus questions them in verse 3. What happens? He, he's, he answers, he says, have you not read what David did? He's, he's talking about here uh, in, two, in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles 21, if you remember, David's running from Saul. He's been anointed king, but Saul doesn't like this idea. Saul wants him dead. And so David has to flee, and some of his mighty men are fleeing with him, but they had to flee so quickly they couldn't take weapons and they couldn't take food. And so as they're on the run, what happens is they stop by where the, where the tabernacle was at the time, where the, or where the, the Ark of the Covenant was at the time. They stop by there, and they ask this priest, 
hey, is, do you have anything for us to eat? And the priest says, well, there's the showbread, or as it says here, the bread of presence, but we're not sure if we can give this to you. Now, this is important. It'll be important, especially as we come back to the end. But the bread of presence were these 12 loaves of bread that were made to, according to God's specifications. They were presented to God as holy, and they were left there. And then what would happen is that there would be a time when the priests would eat that bread with the other bit of meat that they got from the sacrifices to, to feed themselves for sure. That was what it was for. It was to, to provide for them. But also, it was in a way that they were representing eating with God, so to speak that they were eating the bread of his presence. They were representing the 12 tribes of Israel with those 12 loaves eating this presence. And so what happens is that, that stuff's there. And so basically David says, well, yeah, I mean, I know it's for the priests, but you know, we've been walking in holiness. You know, we're, we're trying to be set apart for God. And it is just bread. And so the priest, the indication is the priest goes and says, okay, God, is this okay? Says it's okay. And gives David the bread and they eat it and they're nourished by it. Now, the reason he's bringing this up is because the Pharisees would never say, David did something wrong here, because David was one of their heroes. And so basically, he's saying, okay, you know, what about David? He says, David's authority as God's chosen king superseded the temple law, even. It was, it was, it was like... Jesus is kind of trying to say here, listen, if God's chosen king, when he's even fleeing from the wrong ruler, is able to say, yes, I know that's for the priests and be used in a certain way of worship, but there's a human need here, and my authority as God's chosen king means I should be able to take this, then what about me, he's saying. In fact, he says plainly to them in verse 5, in bringing this up, they're probably going, oh yeah, we know that story, of course we know that story. So Jesus doesn't want them to miss his own point. He says in verse 5, he said to them, the Lord, I'm sorry, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, you need to understand how big this is. Who, who established the Sabbath? What do we read in Genesis? Who established this, the Sabbath? God himself. And Jesus is saying, listen, my authority and need defines how the Sabbath is applied. He's equated himself to the Creator. He's saying, I have the authority, the unique authority, to say, this is how God says this Sabbath is supposed to be done. Jesus is wanting them to see that he has authority over Sabbath traditions. We're going to see why that is in a minute. And then Luke ties us in with another story that happens on the Sabbath, purposely putting these things two together. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man who was, whose right hand was, uh, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might have a reason to accuse him. Now remember, they're still hot on the Sabbath. You can't do any work on the Sabbath. Healing, they would say, is work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Now, the indication here, when it says they watched him, it literally means they looked at him at the corner of their eye. They're kind of, they're giving him the, sort of like the evils, you know. Oh, what, look out for that guy, you know. In other words, what, they, what they're doing here, what they're having here is what the scripture calls evil suspicions. They're, they're looking for him, they're assuming he's going to do something wrong, and they're trying to catch him out. Now, here's the, the thing that's really sad is that in fact, there's, there's even some Bible commentators who think that the Pharisees planted the guy there who had the withered hand just to see if Jesus would heal him. 
But the issue here is, is that in doing this, with their evil suspicions, they're actually undermining the whole purpose of the Sabbath. With being so concerned, watching Jesus, and, and in one sense, watching everybody else to make sure, keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules, they're actually undermining the whole reason God created the Sabbath. So what happens in verse 8? But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. In other words, let's make sure everyone sees this. And then he, he arose and, and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Here's what he's doing. He's questioning them to challenge their motives. What is it about the Sabbath that you want to do? What is, he's trying to get them to think, what's God's purpose for the Sabbath? Is it to do good or is it to do harm? Is it to save life? Rest one and seven, don't kill yourself through work. Rest one and seven, let the ground go fallow. It's better for, for, for production. It's better for the poor. Is it to do good or is it to do harm? Which is it for? He's, he's wanting to challenge what their motives are here. And so then it says in verse 10, in verse, I'm sorry, verse 10, uh, after, and after looking around at them, and, and I want to say too, Mark's gospel brings us out further. Mark's gospel tells us when he's looking around at them, he, it says he's looking around at, with anger because of the hardness of their heart. And he, he, I want you to see this because sometimes I think we picture Jesus as he's just always super nice. Oh, Pharisees, oh, come on. Just would you listen, please? I, I, I have some nice things. To, I want it to be a story, please. No, he's, look, he's, giving them, he's giving them the eye. No kind of sideways glance. He's looking right in their eyes and going, do you know what you're doing? Do you understand what you're doing? Do you even realize how hard your heart is right now? Jesus is doing this. He's confronting their hypocrisy. He's actually angry here. He's, he's frustrated at how hard their hearts are. And he's confronting that. And so looking at them, verse 10, he said to him, that's the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, this is the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In other words, they began to plot, plot his death. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the fact that here, here's Jesus. He's, he's frustrated. He's challenging them. Does he go and walk over to the man and lay his hands on him? No, he doesn't. Why? Why doesn't he do that? That would be work. Does, the, does a withered man have to kind of do star jumps, you know, or something? Does he have to kind of walk in circles? Does he have to do something so he can get healed? No, that would be work. Just enjoying the Lord, enjoying the Father, uh, uh, bringing these individuals to the Father, praying for them very similarly and maybe more specifically than we see in John chapter 17. What an amazing thing to think that God the Son would labor in this loving, surrendered prayer for this way. Now here's the thing. The temptation right here is for me to say, here's what I really want to say. Here's what I, w I had thought originally when I was first preparing this to say, and I've kind of decided, I decided this morning that I shouldn't say this. 
I was going to say, man, if Jesus needed to pray this way to know what God's will for us, how much more do we need to pray? Now, that's true. I'm not saying it's not true. But this is what hit me this morning in reviewing. Jesus is still praying like this for us. He intercedes for us. He's praying that, that, that we would respond to the apostles that he sent. He's praying that we would follow him no matter how hard and how heavy the cost gets. He is constantly interceding for us with his words, but also with his wounds. Father, they are acceptable to you. And the father says, yes, son, they are. He intercedes for us. This is an amazing thing to think about because this is what God is inviting us to when it comes to prayer. Not like, okay, labor harder, stay up all night and pray. Nothing wrong with staying up all night prayer, praying either, by the way. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, necessarily. But it's not, this is not the push. The push here is not work harder, pray harder. The push is, do you recognize what Jesus was doing, what he was enjoying, why he was laboring? It was for us, and he's still doing this. And when we pray, we just kind of come alongside him, praying in his name and saying, Father, would you do what you've promised us you're going to do? Jesus, even in his labor, is resting in the Father's will. And he calls us in prayer to come rest in the Father's will. Lord, you have us. Lord, you're in control. Lord, you're over this virus. You're over this season. You're over this lockdown. And you want to use it all for your glory and our good. And we want to enter into the rest you have for us. This is what Jesus is doing in moving the church forward. Do you realize, as we prayed this morning together and for one another, it doesn't matter if that felt a little awkward and you really weren't sure what to say. If you prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus in simple, childlike faith, guess what? The kingdom moved forward. This is what Jesus wants us to see. This is what... Luke is saying, do you understand, this, this Sabbath rest is going forward. It's being offered. And when he prays, if you're going to pray all night, what you're praying all night for is probably pretty important, yes? What's he praying for? Verse 13. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Now, a disciple means learner. Or you might say someone who's being mentored. It's the, not just someone who's being taught information, but someone who's being shown how to live or how to, 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 to do something, okay? We are called to be disciples. Jesus doesn't just save people. He saves people to become disciples, okay? He doesn't make converts. He makes disciples. And to make disciples, he saves them and says, now come follow me. You guys got that, right? Now, this is important. Listen up. An apostle is someone who's sent out as Jesus' representative. Now, in one sense, we're all sent out. In another sense, there are people who are gifted specifically to go out to do missions work or, or to go out to plant churches, okay? They are, in one sense, an apostle. But what's happening here is something really unique. That these 12, listen, these 12 are chosen and given a unique authority. 
Now, you can look this up later in, 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 in uh, sorry, Acts chapter 1. Remember, Acts look good together. It's not going to be on the screen. Look it up later, Acts chapter 1. And you see, because when they, here they are, they're, they're in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are led by the 11 disciples that are left because G, uh, Judas is, is, is gone by now. And they're praying to God, and as they're seeking God, as God told them to wait in prayer for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, they realize there's only 11 of us, and Jesus wanted 12. And so they, they go through this rigmarole of how can we choose the 12th? And there were super strict guidelines. They had the 12th one apostle had to be chosen for someone who had walked with Jesus from the beginning. One of these early disciples from the beginning had been with him all the way through, had, had seen him crucified, had seen him resurrected. That was the requirement if they're even going to be in the running to be chosen to be an apostle. And you guys probably know the story. They chose Matthias. Why is this important? Because what we see the early church doing in Acts chapter 2 is they continued steadfastly in what? In the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In other words, the authoritative teaching of the early church was from these 12 guys. It wasn't from anybody else. It was these 12 guys who laid down the apostles, and then you had the unique uh, situations like uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who in a sense is given a prophecy in, in, in the book of James, you had Paul, who was one kind of born out of due time, an apostle born out of due time, he says. That these guys laid down the authoritative truth of who, who God is. In other words, listen, Jesus calls these guys to say, go out and make sure people know my Sabbath rest. This is the message. This is the cornerstone of the gospel. This is the foundation of the gospel. That Jesus is appointing these 12 men to proclaim his Sabbath rest. This is what we offer to people. We say, come to Jesus, and he'll give you rest. Can you see why it's important for us to experience rest if we're going to offer rest? Can you see why it's important for us to recognize that these apostles uh, are, are that authority is carried on not by men, but by the word of God itself and men who uphold the word of God. That's the unique authority. Now, here's what's interesting about these guys, and I, wanna, I don't want to take too much time on this, but we, we, we see these men named Simon, who's called Peter. We know much about Peter. He's one of the main three guys that we see, and Peter's uh, the, kind of the spokesperson. Uh, the first half of Acts focuses on Peter. We know a little bit about Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother, it says. Uh, and we know that Andrew it was the one who said, hey, Peter, come see this Jesus guy. I think he might be the Messiah. It says he mentions James and John. We know them. They're the sons of thunder, remember? James was the first leader of the Jerusalem church who was martyred. John is, is the course, who wrote the gospel in his name and and the epistles 1, 2, and 3 John in the book of Revelation, so we're familiar with John. Philip and Bartholomew, we don't know almost anything about them. Matthew is the tax collector. We'll come back to him in a second. Thomas, poor Thomas, we know him as the doubter, but actually Thomas was a, a guy that once he saw the evidence, he says, my Lord and my God, he followed Jesus radically, and tradition tells us he ended up going to India and being a missionary and dying there for Christ. Judas, the son of James, we don't know much about him. Judas Iscariot, the traitor, as he's identified here. Jesus chose someone he knew would betray him. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? But also what's interesting here is 
when it mentions Matthew the tax collector, and this guy is Simon uh, the zealot. Simon, listen, a zealot would have been like a, basically like a political insurrectionist. He was like the anti-Roman government. He was against the Roman government. As a zealot, he would have been someone who would have said, let's take up arms and overthrow the Roman government. It's kind of hard to find an equivalent in, in Christendom today. In modern days, it's kind of hard to say this. Maybe the closest thing would be someone who feels like it's their Christian duty to blow up abortion clinics. And that should be condemned, by the way, just to be clear. We should never do something like that. But having, we should have a conviction that we should protect the most vulnerable, and babies in the womb are the most vulnerable. Life begins at conception. It's a biblical truth. But it doesn't mean we should ever blow up abortion clinics. But can you imagine Jesus saying, okay, here's I want to choose my disciples. I'm going to take that guy who blows up abortion clinics. And Matthew, listen, the tax collector, he would have been someone who, who cooperated, who, who, who worked for the Roman government. He was the guy that made sure that the abortion clinics got their tax funding. And Jesus says, I want to pick that guy to be one of my disciples, one of my apostles. The reason I'm bringing this up, listen, it's because one of the things that happens is one of the reasons we struggle to find rest in Jesus is because we look horizontally at each other and we think, I wish these people would give me rest. I wish they would bear my burdens. I wish they would be, be that refuge that I need. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to bear one another's burdens. That's another Bible study. <laughs> but the problem is we're not called to look to one another to find rest. We're called to look to Jesus. We are different people. We struggle to rest with each other, don't we? We struggle to be at peace with each other. It's a struggle we need to keep striving towards. But we do struggle to do that. But we look to Jesus for rest. The reason Jesus chose these 12 apostles was not that they would be the means of rest, but they would point to Jesus who is our Sabbath rest. Let's respond. In fact, I'm going to ask the music team to come back up as we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table. You should have the elements for communion near you, so we want to get those ready. And we want to prepare not just to kind of go through the religious motion. We don't want to just say, I've obeyed the Sabbath, look at me. By the way, Sunday's not the Sabbath anyway. Uh, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is actually the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's day. But we don't want to just say, oh, I obeyed the Lord's day, I, I took communion. That's not what this is about. We want to prepare ourselves to actually fellowship with Jesus at the table. To rest. To find refreshment. To find provision. To let this be our one in seven. We stop and say, Lord, it's good to feed with you and to feed on you. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you guys some questions. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Not just over the religious tradition, but as the Lord of all, the Lord who gives rest. Do you believe that? Thinking of the imagery from this passage, are, are, are you willing to, will you stretch out your hand, so to speak, in accordance with Jesus' word, or will you furiously resist him? No. 
He hasn't given me rest. No, I won't submit to him. Will you receive the promises he's given to us through his chosen apostles? We don't have them, those 12 guys with us anymore. We don't have the Apostle Paul with us anymore. But we have their doctrine, their word. That brings us life. That shows us the way. Or are you going to just dismiss the word of God? Because, well, gosh, everyone has so many different interpretations. There's so much diversity out there. Still the word of God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all you, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Do you need that rest? Maybe the heavy burden you're carrying is the burden of your own sin. You're carrying this burden of I want to know God, but I'm so bad. I do so many bad things. And you're carrying something that you're not meant to carry. And Jesus is saying, I will carry that. In fact, Jesus would say, I have carried that at the cross. I've carried it at the cross. Or maybe what it is is that you're going, okay, I do believe Jesus died for me. I do believe he... He paid so that my sins could be forgiven, but I just, I need to try harder. I need to work more. I, I need to do more. I don't feel at ease unless I have a heavy burden to carry. And Jesus might say to you, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and the burden I give you is light. Jesus isn't saying it's easy to follow him. He's saying it's easier than going the road of the Pharisees or the road of self. He's saying, listen, you come follow me, you'll find that my yoke is easy. I woke up yesterday morning, not this morning, but yesterday morning at 3 o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I got up and I read a good Christian book that I'm reading and spent some time praying for the Lord, but was feeling still pretty anxious most of the day, to be honest. Had a good meeting with our leadership team. Love those guys. They're great guys. Finished my day of work. Got home a little bit after five. Relaxed. Had a nice meal. Had a good conversation with the kids. Went to bed. Exhausted. Woke up again. Five o'clock. Couldn't go back to sleep. Or actually, 4.30. Couldn't go back to sleep. Alarm was going off at five anyway. Got out of bed started thinking about all the stuff that's happening, all the things that need to be planned and all the, all the mental health issues I know of in the church and, and all the needs that need to get met and was just kind of going, oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. This is so hard. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm prepared for today, but I keep thinking of all this stuff. And, and finally, I just, I just knelt down next to my chair, the chair that I sit in and and I just said, Lord, I am burdened. And I just came to Jesus and said, Lord, here's this person and their issue. And Lord, here's, here's all my issues. And here's the things I'm worried about. And here's the things I'm not sure about. And here's, here's the, the fact that I know we're close to the end, but it feels heavier now than it did maybe a couple months ago. 
Lord, here's all these burdens. And just like we sang this morning, oh, what a friend. The Lord took those off. Now, some of you are watching this and you're thinking to yourself, John, you're preaching experience now. We don't want to preach experience. Well, this is, I don't know, I think Jesus is describing an experience here. I think when Jesus says, take my yoke upon me, uh, when he says, you'll find rest for your souls, I think that's more than just, yes, I sign on the doctrinal line that I have rest for my soul. I think this is an experience of in the midst of chaos, under burdens that we cannot carry, there's rest. And the rest isn't found in keeping the Sabbath right, making sure you do Sunday the way you're supposed to do Sunday. It's found in Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. We want to remember that this little weird prepackaged bread <laughs> has been intentionally set aside to represent Christ's sinless, broken body. And this strange plastic cup of crushed grape has been set aside to represent Christ's spilled blood. The section we are reading this morning is before Christ dies before he's broken and crushed for our sake. Yet, in one sense, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And he would say, stop holding on to that burden. Stretch out your hand and give it to me. He would say, stop trying to work yourself out of your sin. Receive grace, forgiveness purchased for you on the cross. He would say, stop being furious because I'm confronting your religiosity. Humble yourself and say, Lord, no matter how well I think I'm doing at keeping your law, no flesh will be justified by your law. It's only through Jesus that I can be justified. Come to him now. Let's come to him together. And let's do this in remembrance of him. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the Lord of our Sabbath, our rest. Lord, we long for the day when Sabbath is permanent. <laughs> oh, Lord, we can't wait. Until then, Lord, may we find our rest in you. May we find our hope in you. And may we come to your altar. Lord, we do this now in remembrance of Jesus. Let's all partake. Let's answer with, yes, Lord, I want to come to your altar. And Lord, I want to cast my cares on you because you care for me. And I want to receive afresh your forgiveness and take on your yoke and walk with you. Amen? We'll see you all next week.